A precautionary note, this episode does contain sexual content. It is not explicit or graphic, but it might not be suitable for all audiences. The title should basically tell you what you're in for, so you can proceed accordingly. This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, February 14th, 2019, episode 67, concerning a maiden seduced by an incubus, or a Dunwich horror. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today is Valentine's Day, and so I thought I'd give you a tale of courtship and gifts and sweet nothings whispered into ears, uh, but one that's not particularly romantic. This is still medieval death trip, after all. Today, we're getting a story of supernatural seduction, taken from the same text as our very first episode, The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich, by Thomas of Monmouth and translated by Augustus Jessup and M.R. James. This book has some proto-blood-libel ugliness at its center that I don't want to fail to acknowledge, um, but rather than going back into all of that now, I'd encourage you to check out our episode 11, How a Blood Libel Takes Root, which examines the murder of William and also happens to be one of our most downloaded episodes. So the actual rubric for today's story that heads it in our only existing manuscript of the Life and Miracles is... De virgine quadam de dunuis a demonis incubi infestatione liberata, or concerning a certain maiden of Dunwich delivered from the persecution of a devilish incubus. Now, I knew the name Dunwich, or Dunwich, as I had called it all the way up until preparing to record this episode, um, though at this point I really should have known better. I mean, are there any of these witch place names where the W isn't supposed to be silent? Well, I guess Sandwich and Ipswich, and generally for American place names who can predict what the locals actually go with. So, okay, I don't feel bad at all. Uh, and I don't actually know what the case should be with the Dunwich I know, which is the fictional Massachusetts town of H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror. And in fact, I'm going to make the judgment call and say Lovecraft's town I'll call Dunwich, and the English town I will call correctly, Dunwich. The plot of the Dunwich Horror is that a warlock called Old Waitley, we never get his first name, uh, in the early years of the 20th century arranges to have his daughter Lavinia impregnated by the cosmic horror Yogg-Sothoth. Lavinia gives birth to the devilish Wilbur Waitley and his unnamed twin brother, a spoiler alert, Invisible, inhuman monster that, we're told, takes more after their father. The Waitley's family activities intersect with Lovecraft's iconic Miskatonic University, and the rest of the story follows the occult investigation into what's happening in the Waitley's hometown of Dunwich, especially once the monster brother bursts out of the house and goes on a rampage. This is one of Lovecraft's most popular stories. Uh, it even got a film adaptation in 1970, starring Dean Stockwell and Sandra Dee, um, which is at least faithful to the broad strokes of the original story, which is a bit of a rarity uh, in Lovecraft adaptations. 
Anyway, I was struck by the coincidence of two stories about an otherworldly seduction both being tied to the name Dunwich. Though our medieval story is, of course, about the real English port of Dunwich, or at least it was real in the 12th century when Thomas of Monmouth is writing, uh, it has since mostly been eroded away into the sea, which also sounds rather Lovecraftian. Uh, Lovecraft admired the ghost stories of M.R. James, and I wondered if perhaps this 1896 translation somehow made it into his hands. On the whole, this seems unlikely. A lot of writers and artists since Lovecraft have worked his mythos into medieval settings, but Lovecraft himself was not interested in the Middle Ages. In fact, exactly the opposite. He was repulsed by them. He admired ancient Rome and Enlightenment England, and took the view that the Middle Ages were the stereotypical Dark Ages, Europe turning its back on the learning and rationality of classical civilization, which he so greatly admired. Uh, I'm lightly indebted here to the first few pages of a great-looking uh, essay by Brantley L. Bryant called Lovecraft's Unnameable Middle Ages from an anthology called Medieval Afterlives in Popular Culture. Uh, and I say lightly indebted because I wasn't able to get my hands on this before having to record. Um, it's presently somewhere in the interlibrary loan system, gradually creeping its way to me like some gibbering abyssal abomination that just to look upon would plunge me into the depths of inescapable madness. But that's why in my use of this essay, I'm limited to just the opening pages, uh, which had an online preview. But in those pages, Bryant confirms my own fuzzy memories of a Lovecraft biography and uh, letters that I read back years and years ago. Um, actually, my initial guess, which Bryant doesn't specifically confirm in those opening pages, though maybe it gets addressed later, is that Lovecraft's anti-Catholicism would set him dead against pretty much all medieval art and narrative. While Lovecraft was fairly contemptuous of all religion, uh, he nonetheless identified with a cultural Protestant spirit, uh, and I can't imagine him reading anything monkish without utter disgust. As much as the apparatus of manuscript study and old tomes litters his work, he doesn't seem to have been very interested in the world that produced those tomes. So there is this thread of a textual medievalism that one can find in Lovecraft, uh, despite his own rejection of the Middle Ages as basically a big regressive mistake in the history of European development. Maybe I'll explore that further if we come across another Lovecraftian text, and after I've had a chance to actually read all of Bryant's essay. Uh, we actually had another Lovecraft connection last episode with Dagon, the sea god of the Philistines, whose name Lovecraft borrowed into his mythos as the greatest of the Deep Ones, uh, and which is also the title of a very loose film adaptation of his story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Anyway, uh, let's leave Lovecraft's 1920s behind us and slip into the dark, irrational, and superstitious days of the mid-12th century. Here's Thomas of Monmouth telling us about a young woman's brush with a demonic suitor. Sometime after this, in a town called Dunwich, there was a certain maiden who from a very early age had had in her the love of God, had trodden underfoot the lusts of the flesh, 
and had a desire for the celibate life. She was sought in marriage by many, not only because she was very beautiful in person, but because it was known that her parents were very rich. But however many were her suitors, she was so constant in her purpose that she rejected them all. So she continued to dwell in her father's house where she lived a solitary life, repeating day and night the psalm she had learned. She cared for nothing but God, to whom she poured forth her desires with all her heart. The devil grudged her these pious yearnings. Wherefore, in order that he might cast her down from the pinnacle of her purpose, he sent against her a messenger of evil. Wherefore, one of those beings whom they call fairies and incubi, who are prone to lust and are often the seducers of women, changing himself into the form of a very beautiful young man, came to where she was and suddenly appeared before her. The maiden, in her loneliness, scared by the coming of a single young man, was much frightened. He saluted her, and being acknowledged in return, he took a seat. He pretended to be what he was not, that he might accomplish his purpose. He pretended that he was of knightly rank and of gentle blood, and he had the appearance of one endowed with merit and beauty, and rich and bountiful. Yet the maiden, simple and modest, held her peace, and with her face turned to the ground, she closed her eyes. But the other spake, saying, O maiden to me, so full of grace, be graciously pleased to hearken to me. The fame of your chastity and the beauty of your form have for long been sounding in my ears. So a longing seized me, and I have come to see her whose fame has reached me. Verily, the sight of you delights me. What remains but that we should be married? What is sweeter or more joyous than love? That youthful age of both of us and the beauty that we both possess invites us to an interchange of love. If like be joined to like, friendship is accounted the more fitting. You know not who I am. I will tell you in few words. I excel all men in nobleness and beauty. I surpass all in wisdom and virtue. I am better supplied than all others in the abundance of my riches, and that I may prove my words, if only you give your assent, straightway I will endow you with such immense gifts as your parents never yet possessed. Thereupon he produced rings, necklaces, collars, brooches, earrings, and many things of the kind, and he offered them to her, saying, Be graciously pleased to accept these things now, my dearest, my most desired one. By and by you shall have more and more precious things according to your wishes. What could a maiden do? How could the weaker sex resist these things? The blandishment of this high-flown praise made her ears tingle. The presence of great value delighted her eyes. The promises of riches and power were influencing her mind. But in the midst of it all, her soul continued steadfast in Christ and unmoved. And though that soul was tossed upon the waves of temptation, the love of Christ still ruled within her. So the maiden rose, she rejected the gifts, she refused his offers. What next? Scorned and vanquished, the malignant foe with all his gifts disappeared as suddenly as he came. Yet, returning, he plied her as before, night and day. He offered her more and more, his promises were boundless. Silken robes all glistening with gems, silver and gold, and whatever can be imagined most precious and fair in the glory of this world, he heaped up before her and offered them all. He persisted continually in his offers, but laboring always in vain, he began to ply her with increasing pertinacity. 
but the maiden, taking counsel with herself and fearing violence, which she suspected, acquainted her parents with the whole business. They, because they knew that nobody had really had access to her chamber, and yet heard this visitor coming in daily, conjectured that it must be an evil spirit whose sudden appearance and as sudden departure the maiden's narrative had described. So the parents used all diligence and set watches. But as for him, he could neither be kept out by guards nor shut out by locks and bars, and now he began to assail her the more violently that so he might by violence subdue her whom he could not overcome by flattery nor gifts nor promises. Whereupon some priests were consulted. Masses were celebrated, prayers were said, alms were distributed. They sprinkled her chamber with holy water, a cross was set up before her bed, and soon it was known to all that it was an evil spirit who was infesting her, so that they tried to drive him away by the divine sacraments when no human means did any good. But the evil spirit, who at first made his advances at the interval of a day or two, now became more and more pressing, and now was always close to her. However, the divine goodness, which is always nigh at hand to his faithful ones and takes care that they should not be overwhelmed by temptations, brought about a saving comfort for that damsel so sorely troubled. For one night while she was asleep, almost worried to death, there stood by her in the visions of the night one of reverend look with white hair and robed in pontifical garments, who said to her, Daughter mine and damsel dear to God, fear not at my coming, but give heed to the messenger of thy salvation. Thou hast striven with a malignant foe, thou hast borne much, thou hast vanquished nobly. Thou hast earned a crown by thy chastity and a prize by thy resistance. But that thou mayest be free from the trouble of thy daily temptation, in the morning go thou to Norwich with three wax tapers and both thy parents with thee, and seek out the sepulchre of the holy martyr William, slain by the Jews, and take this for certain, that when thou shalt have thence returned, thou shalt receive the comfort of the deliverance thou desirest. I am, I tell thee, Herbert the bishop, the founder of the church of Norwich, who am the messenger to thee of thy salvation. Rise up, go thy way, thou shalt be set free. The vision passed, and the maiden awoke. She rose and told her parents what she had seen. The tapers were made, they took their way to Norwich, they arrived at the Episcopal Church. There the vision was told to Wickman, a monk who at the time was the bishop's deputy for hearing confessions, and to other monks, and it was shown by what importunity she was pressed, and the cause of her journey was explained. When they heard it, they marveled at the evil spirit's audacity. They gave heed to the warnings of the gracious vision, and, the tapers being lit, the maiden with her parents was led to St. William's sepulchre, then set up in the open air at the entrance of the cemetery. There they spent some time in prayer to God. They made their supplications and vows to the holy martyr. Their tears traveled heavenward, and so the heavens poured forth the dew of pity. Thus the malice of the enemy was restrained, and divine virtue beamed upon the maiden. For now, full of hope, she went home with her parents, feeling quite safe, and received many congratulations on the evil spirit's assaults having been overcome. Assuredly, by this miracle, the memory of the blessed martyr William revived, for it had gradually been waning, yea, in the hearts of almost all it had almost entirely died out. I would fain that the earnest reader be admonished that he note, from what has been set down, what great influence Bishop Herbert of pious memory has with God, 
who deserved to be made the secret messenger of a divine dispensation, and how earnest a patron he is of the Church of Norwich, which he himself founded. So, there's one way to rid yourself of a demon lover. In my preparation for this episode, I came across a reference to another supernatural romance of Dunwich, uh, the real Dunwich. This story goes by the name The Dark Heart of Dunwich, and is allegedly a bit of local folklore. Uh, here's the summary of it, uh, as posted on Wikipedia. Quote, The Dark Heart of Dunwich is a piece of Suffolk folklore, the origins of which appear to lie in the 12th century. The legend tells how Eva, a Dunwich maiden due to be married to the son of a local landowner, fell instead for a good-looking local cad who had sex with her and then deserted her, running off to sea. After waiting in vain for her lost love to return, she cut out her heart and hurled it into the sea. However, according to the legend, she was unable to die and still haunts the area, particularly around the constantly shifting beach. The heart itself, believed to be similar in appearance to a wooden heart, is believed to wash up occasionally and bring great misfortune onto anyone who picks it up and keeps it. End quote. Now, I said this was allegedly folklore um, because I can't find any particularly reliable sources for this story. Uh, what I find are a lot of pages online that basically rehash this same one-paragraph summary in suspiciously similar wording, or even the exact same wording, uh, often with a reference straight to Wikipedia. There are a couple of contemporary bands that have recorded ballads of the story, um, but at least one of these summarizes the story on their Bandcamp page with the same Wikipedia-based paragraph. I can't find any acknowledgement of this legend in any books by antiquarians of Dunwich or in collections of folklore or ghost stories, uh, certainly nothing that indicates a medieval text that this story might be preserved in. So maybe it is part of a genuine Suffolk oral tradition that has just stayed oral tradition all the way into the 20th century, but that seems a little suspicious to me. Uh, I have a feeling that this might be a relatively modern concoction that's been dressed up in the trappings of folklore. But any folklorists or Suffolk residents who can weigh in on this matter, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Tweet me at mdtpodcast. So, let's shift from folklore to demonology. An article by Micah Vanderlucht, uh, The Incubus in Scholastic Debate, traces out interesting categorical distinctions in the various classical and medieval discourses surrounding incubi. For example, there's a good amount of discussion of incubi in medieval medical literature, where they are presented in all of the classic symptoms of night terrors or sleep paralysis, uh, which even today often manifest as the sensation of another body pressing down on you. Indeed, the word incubus derives from the Latin verb incubare, meaning to lie upon. The 14th century physician Bernard of Gordon wrote this description of the incubus uh, as translated by Vanderlucht. Incubus is an apparition that presses on the body and weighs it down during sleep, disturbing both movement and speech. Incubus is the name of a demon, and that is why some people think that when the incubus is directly above the human body, especially when a person lies on his back, he presses the body down by his corrupting influence, to such an extent that the patient thinks he is going to suffocate. 
When this happens to babies, they often do suffocate because they cannot bear so great a corruption. Such is the opinion of the theologians. But the common people believe that the incubus is an old woman who tramples on and presses down the body. This is nonsense. The physicians have a better opinion. End quote. Uh, Bernard then goes on to lay out the natural causes of this experience of incubus as a disease, not a demon. Some of these causes, by the way, are going to sleep with a full stomach or having blockages in the flow of the humors around the body. About a hundred years later, you get a naturalistic account of this that would fit perfectly well into a modern scientific discussion of sleep paralysis. Uh, this is from the 15th century physician Giovanni Arcolano. Quote, in most cases, the patient suffering from incubus believes that the fantasy that weighs on him is a demon because of the popular belief that demons roam around at night and unite themselves with humans and do them harm. It is, in fact, that belief that leads him to judge the ailment he feels in such a way. If no such belief about that kind of demons existed, he would think that it was some other kind of heavy thing. End quote. That's a very lucid bit of psychological insight right there, and we see precisely this today with night terrors, which sometimes manifest as uh, modern horrors like alien visitations or near-death experiences. The medieval medical literature does not make sex a necessary or even prominent feature of this experience, uh, nor, as we see in other cautionary tales from medieval writers, do incubi necessarily have to have human form. Indeed, you find one story of a young monk who believes he is being smothered nightly by a spirit in the form of a great bear. In contrast, the off-sided counterpart to the incubus, the succubus, is really only discussed in terms of sexual temptation and is generally taken to be an explanation for erotic dreams and nocturnal emissions by men. Um, in medieval discourse, the succubus almost always appears as a young woman and is quite separate from the nightmare or night hag who sits on top of sleepers and is more commonly linked to night terrors. So, the simplistic rendering of incubus and succubus as simply the male and female versions of the same kind of sex demon doesn't really hold up in actual medieval demonology. That said, as far as the sexual component, uh, some theologians and physicians did propose a distinction between incubi, which engage in sexual temptation or assault, and something called ephialtes, which were non-sexual, uh, that name coming from the Greek for jumping onto someone. The sleep paralysis version of both incubus and ephialtes goes right back into medical treatises from classical antiquity but the term incubus is also taken up by patristic Christian writers in yet another vein. St. Jerome applies the term to a half-man, half-goat companion of St. Paul the Hermit, who appears in Jerome's Vita of the Saint. This creature is linked to demons, but isn't itself malevolent. Augustine uses incubi similarly to refer to Greco-Roman satyrs and fauns, though he does emphasize their sexual aggression. Um, nonetheless, they remain in the wild man category, uh, woodland spirits who aren't particularly creeping into people's bedrooms. Isidore of Seville gives us the fawn incubus quite clearly in his etymologies. He writes, quote, Hairy ones, pelosus, are called panatae in Greek and incubuses in Latin, or inui from copulating, inire, indiscriminately with animals. 
Hence also incubi are so called from lying upon, incumbere, that is, violating, for often they are shameless toward women and manage to lie with them. The Gauls call these demons ducii, because they carry out this foulness continually, assidui. Common people call one demon incubo, and the Romans called him faunus of the figs. About him Horace says, Faunus, lover of fleeing nymphs, may you pass lightly through my borders and sunny fields. End quote. So you have two or three different concepts using the same word uh, that clearly merge somewhat in the medieval period, but sometimes separate back out again. The definition of incubus continues to vary depending on who you ask. And Thomas of Monmouth's incubus in our story today kind of gets to borrow from all of those categories. Uh, he's not a bestial wild man, um, but Thomas uses the terminology right out of Isidore. The agent sent by the devil, Diabolus, is one of what Jessup and James translate as fairies or incubi, or in Thomas's Latin, fauni and incubi. In this case, fairy seems like a good translation for the being that appears. It's not the Greek goat man, it's the British image of an elegant and otherworldly gentleman from the kingdom under the hill. I'm also reminded of the figure of the devil as the richly dressed sailor in The Ballad of the House Carpenter, or the figure who appears at the end of 2016's The Witch, uh, as recommended on our last Halloween episode. The temptation he offers is even only sexual by implication. He's not tempting the maiden with the carnal delights of the bedroom. He's bribing her for sex with expensive gifts. Really, it's another one of those stories that, at first glance, makes one suspect that there's a more mundane, real story behind it of a girl harassed by an insistent wealthy suitor who then gets transformed in the retelling into a supernatural threat. Uh, and indeed, one is tempted to find a link between this 12th century story of an ill-omened suitor and the Dark Heart of Dunwich, if that really is uh, that old of a legend. Alternatively, there's the question of whether this could be considered a story of demonic possession. It certainly doesn't seem so at first, but by the end, you have the image of the girl in bed, surrounded by holy artifacts, and yet in the constant presence of this demon— and we're never told that anyone else can actually see him. It's suggested that this is an invisible presence only perceptible to the girl. A modern reader is tempted here to start thinking in terms of schizophrenia, the age of onset fits, uh, as do the escalating visual and auditory hallucinations that focus on the sights of one's greatest feelings of guilt or self-loathing. And schizophrenia is, of course, one of the most commonly proposed medical explanations for accounts of demonic possession. But would we call the maiden of this story possessed? The word Thomas uses to describe what this incubus does to the maiden is infestare, which we can translate as infest, but in Latin it really means to bother, to harass, to attack. Uh, it's often used to describe the actions of hostile armies, which is where it acquires its associations with invasion. So now if we say someone is infested with demons, we'd assume that means they have demons inside them, just like a house can be infested with termites. But Thomas is not necessarily indicating that. He could simply mean that the maiden is being repeatedly harassed by the demon, afflicted by him, but not necessarily possessed as we would picture it in our post-exorcist world. But Thomas also includes in his book two other miracles of possessed men who are cured at St. William's Shrine. 
One is identified outright in the rubric as a demoniacus, a demoniac. This man is said to be vexed by a devil, a demonio vexatum. The other man is called a furiosus, a madman. Uh, In fact, this is a category in Roman law which distinguished the furiosus, or permanently insane person, or a psychotic, we would say, from a demens, uh, as in dementia, someone who experiences only periodic or cyclical madness. The furiosus in Thomas is said to be a repticius, one who has been seized, or we might say, one possessed. He is also a demonio corruptus, another prefixed form of ripio, and also meaning seized or in the grasp of. But both of these figures demonstrate their possessions by outright antisocial behavior, which we don't see from our maiden. She simply seems to suffer under the onslaughts of this demon. Does that help us draw any conclusions about how Thomas's audience would categorize what happened to the maiden of Dunwich? Um, no, I don't really think it does. A bit like the categorization of Incubus, I think this is an episode that does more to highlight the muddiness of categories in contrast to the tidy boundaries a lot of scholars, medieval and modern, like to delineate and impose. I was going to have a segue into our mystery word about people stubbornly insisting on absolutes, um, but I realized that would do a disservice to scholars and how scholarly argument actually works and how they actually think about their subjects. You know, we have to systematize knowledge in order to advance knowledge, and that inevitably pastes over ambiguities and inconsistencies that are intrinsic to culture and nature. Uh, So I'll forgive scholarship that, and we'll just move on to our mystery word uh, abruptly. Our mystery word, then, is threep, T-H-R-E-A-P. Though in the Middle English context that I'm citing, those vowels can be any combination of things that make an E sound. Uh, This word comes from Old English threpion, which means to rebuke, to reprimand. And in around the 13th century in Middle English, it's being used more broadly to mean to argue or quarrel. In that sense, you also see it used to figuratively describe what a strong thunderstorm does. It makes a lot of noise. But in the 14th century, it starts to acquire a more specific sense, and that's the one I'm interested in. It shows up in Chaucer's Canon's Yeoman's Prologue and Tale, where the yeoman is explaining what he knows of his master, the canon's alchemical doctrines. Part of that is the link between the seven metals and the heavenly bodies. He tells the group, quote, Soul, or the sun, gold is, and luna, silver, we threep. Mars, iron, mercury, quicksilver, we clep, or call. Saturnus, lead, and Jupiter is tin, and Venus, copper, by my father's kin. So if you try to fit the old definition in there, you can start to recognize that something's changing. Soul, gold is, and luna, silver, we threep. Now, our modern argue fits in there just fine. We argue that the sun is gold and the moon is silver. So it seems like that's all there is to it. Except that the older sense of argue in threep wasn't used for arguing as in an academic disputation. It evoked strife, argument as a fight. Indeed, the words claim, assert, insist seem to best suit the meaning of the yeoman's sentence. And if you try to mentally blend claiming or insisting with quarreling, you begin to see what threep is mutating into. By the 15th century, a new meaning is pretty well established, which is, as the OED states it, quote, to persist in asserting something contradicted or doubted, to maintain obstinately or aggressively. And so the yeoman's line really becomes, 
we keep shouting over and over that the sun is gold and the moon is silver. I think that the idea of insisting on the truth of something that is either obviously contradicted or widely doubted is an idea we could get a lot of mileage out of in our present time. It not only describes duplicitous suitors, or internet trolls, but applies to a whole political strategy. You see variations of the quote, if you tell a big enough lie often enough it will become the truth, uh, peppered across Twitter and Facebook. And we have this nice existing verb to describe what it's getting at. Um, I propose we bring it back into currency. What's the president, or prime minister, or famous pundit, you know, take your pick. What are they threeping about today? An additional usage of threep defined in the OED is the phrase, to threep something upon someone, meaning to lead or try to lead one to believe by persistent assertion. I think there's a powerful and useful specificity here, in that threep distinguishes the activity from argument. It is not concerned with evidence or details or substantively addressing points or counterarguments. It is just a kind of shouting, disengaged insistence. How many times have I read the phrase, so-and-so claims without evidence in headlines over the past couple of years? Well, we've got an English verb available that captures that phrase in one word. And to wrap up on a lighter note, any Secret of Monkey Island fans out there, like me, might be reminded of that game's protagonist, Guybrush Threepwood. Is there a connection there? Well, maybe. Guybrush's surname is a kind of homage to Freddy Threepwood, another cheerful idiot from P.G. Woodhouse's Blanding's Castle books. And Woodhouse may well have had some sense of the word's origins. Threepwood is a real place name given to a few real locations in Britain, and it means a disputed tract of woodland. One of these is the village of Threepwood on the border of Chestershire and Flintshire, which because it sat right on this border, fell into no specific jurisdiction, uh, which is what makes it disputed. There was no justice of the peace who had jurisdiction over it, and it was subject to no parish authorities. It sounds like it was a bit like the town of Deadwood in its early years, existing outside of normal law, uh, except this condition persisted in Threepwood until at least the 18th century. According to one author quoted by Wikipedia, Threepwood was known as a place of, quote, abandoned characters of every description, and especially of women of loose or blemished morals, end quote, uh, as well as deserters from the army. Today, it has a population of around 150 people, of what degree of personal abandonment, I cannot say. Well, I'll be back with a new riddle and a new medieval text. Um, not as fast as this episode came out, right after the previous one. Uh, I didn't want to miss Valentine's Day. Our next episode will be in about two weeks, and that's the rhythm I'll be shooting for as the year continues. You can get updates about episode releases by following us on Twitter, at MDT Podcast. You can also get more information, including bibliographic references for this and every episode on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can send me email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can support the show on Patreon, Patreon.com slash MDTPodcast, or just search for the show there. Patrons get access to an increasing stock of bonus content, uh, most recently a commentary track I recorded for the film Dragon Slayer. And as near as I can tell, it may be one of only three fan commentary tracks that have ever been recorded for this movie, uh, and there are no official ones to my knowledge. So if you want your fix of Dragon Slayer commentary, become a patron. I think I can pretty well guarantee that uh, mine is the only commentary track for this movie that includes discussion and reading of medieval texts as part of it. 
Uh, I would say make it a Valentine's date movie, except the romance plotline isn't great, uh, as I discuss in my commentary, uh, so maybe save it for a different movie night later in the month. Anyway, until next time, may all your Valentines be human beings, and thanks for listening. <laughs>